Welcome to Modern Aikidoist Podcast. My sincere thanks to the listeners who have liked, subscribed, and commented. Your interest is noticed and deeply appreciated. Thank you very much. Today's podcast is about the possible adverse effects on the body from training Aikido. I'll get into it from the standpoint both of new students and what they tend to experience, as well as what happens over longer periods of training. What I'm going to present is a collection of my experiences and observations, as well as what I've heard talking with other practitioners about their experiences. Let's start with those who are new to Aikido. New students usually find rolling, kneeling, and shiko, which is knee walking, the most uncomfortable. When I was new to Aikido, sitting seiza or kneeling on the ground was pretty painful for me. The knees weren't too bad, but my ankles weren't flexible enough so that the top of my feet could lay flat on the mat. So when I sat back on the back of my heels, my ankles felt the pressure. It took about a month or two uh, before that started, my ankles started becoming flexible enough where I could sit seiza comfortably. Once my ankles could handle it pretty well, I still noticed I could only sit seiza for just a few minutes before my knees started to get a little uncomfortable. As the months went on, I was able to sit seiza for a longer and longer period of time before having to shift back to uh, sitting cross-legged so I could relieve the pressure on my knees. At most, about the time I was brown belt, I could easily sit for about 30 minutes in seiza, and then later on as I became uh, udancha and would actually sit on tests and whatnot during seminars, I could sit for about 40 to 45 minutes in seiza comfortably. That was quite a few years ago, but now I can only sit seiza for uh, eight, six to ten minutes before my knees get really sore. I've noticed that new students tend to run across some issues with learning how to roll, usually when they come down on their shoulder. The shoulder is the hardest impact that you usually get when you don't uh, blend with the ground uh, very well or you haven't learned to do that yet. And when you get used to softly setting your shoulder down, then rolling becomes much smoother and more comfortable. But there's a learning curve in the beginning that can make it a little bit rough. The key is to learn to gently lower your shoulder down and set it on the mat as you initiate your roll. This tends to overcome most of the problems that people experience when learning how to forward roll. The other thing that tends to hurt while learning front rolls is when a student is afraid to let his hips come up over his head in order to do the front roll usually because they're kind of afraid, they don't want to let their hips come up off the ground, they try to keep their hips low, and what happens is they roll sideways, and we sometimes call this barrel rolling. And when you turn your body and try to roll sideways, what happens is you usually come down on your side, and that results in impact on your kidneys, and that can hurt. I've noticed it doesn't take too long for new students to start to get acclimated and uh, to the rolls and get pretty comfortable with them <clears throat> to the point where they start doing them out of technique more and more, which is a good stage to get to. Once you get to that level, now you reach a danger zone with rolling, and that comes when you build a false confidence with rolling. You feel like you're getting your rolls down, and they feel good, so you want to get thrown harder and faster. You want to start playing more. But if your rolls aren't really sharp, and you nail them every time, and you miss one, and you get thrown hard and fast, that's when you can get hurt. I'd say a majority of the time where I've seen intermediate students miss a roll and get hurt, it's because they were taking their ukemi for granted. They thought it was going to be automatic, and it wasn't. Maybe their mind was on something else for just that moment when they get thrown, and they miss the roll, they miss blending with the ground, and that's when they come away banged up a little bit. Always remember, the earth hits harder than anything else. Never take gravity for granted, and make sure that you are focused on your ukemi. 
The next thing I want to talk about are knee issues. And knee problems are common to almost all sports, not even just martial arts, but basketball, tennis, you name it. Knee problems are very, very common. Aikido is no different and can pose some problems for knees, even knees which are pretty healthy to start out with. The very first issue I ran into regarding knees was when I was a new student and uh, we were getting used to dropping to the ground. Oftentimes when I would drop, I would drop to a knee, which I thought on a padded floor, not a big deal. I dropped to the mat and it didn't hurt my knees, so I kept practicing. What I noticed was that repeatedly dropping to my knees and having even a bit of impact on them started to create a bruise and it became quite painful as the class went on. So within the first two months, I learned pretty readily that even if you drop to your knees, make sure you set your knee down gently on the mat so that you can keep training for a full class without your knees becoming tender and bruised. Also consider that if you drop to a knee in a real world environment, there could be rocks, rough ground, broken glass, or other kind of hazards which could easily injure your knee. Even dropping to a knee on pavement would be painful. Always control your landing as much as possible. These are a couple of reasons I'm not a fan of kneeling to apply pins. It is fine to do on a clean padded surface but is risky in a real setting. Not just because of your knees, but the fact that you're less able to depart quickly if you have to. It's also more difficult to deal with other potential attackers when you're on your knees and have to get up before you're able to move around. It's so much easier when you're standing or very close to standing. I like to kneel, but I kneel on uke to help apply the pin. This works just as well, if not better than kneeling, and if I need to get out of there fast, I don't have to rise to my feet before I can take off. Be careful what you practice because the patterns you build with repetitions will be what you tend to do under stress. I could probably do a whole podcast on just that and how profoundly this concept has affected how I look at my own Aikido training, but I won't go deeper into that right now. One movement that's common to Aikido, which is the Tenkan turn, can actually have adverse effects on your knees and can cause injury, and I've experienced this myself. Hip turns are very powerful, and the leg that's supporting the hips, if you're turning on that, it can introduce a, a circular torque on your knee in the direction of your turn. If you don't lighten up your heel and allow the ball of your foot to pivot, you can wind up having the power of that hip turn come right into a direction of force that your knee is not adapted to, which is a, a sideways twist. Knees are more like hinges. They're meant to go uh, in one direction, but they're not meant to turn. Uh, so as you start learning, your hip turns are not very powerful, so it's not really much of an issue. But as you start to get down a solid hip turn, if you keep that base foot planted that you're pivoting on, you can actually sideways torque a knee. Uh, in the case that I had, I was doing a, a code of gash technique on a, on a classmate and I did a nice powerful hip turn and my foot was planted a little bit more than it should have and I really tweaked the knee. The swelling started on the inside, it, it actually swelled up uh, visibly, but it was painful right away. It took me probably three to four months before it, the swelling was down enough that I could go back onto the mat and practice again. And what I learned was that that heel needs to come up and you need to be able to pivot the foot uh, in order to save the knee. So be careful with your Tenkan turns. There's something that you'll get to a point where your, your hip turning gets more powerful, could pose a problem for, for your knee joints. I had a student that experienced uh, not as bad as a, a, an injury to the knee that I had, 
in fact, I don't even know if it was an injury, but he was noticing some kind of chronic pain in his knees, especially when we were practicing 10-con techniques. And I found out that he was indeed planting his foot a little bit more than he should have. So one of the things that I had him do was wear a sock uh, on that foot <coughs> of the knee that was causing the trouble so that the sock let him slide his foot a little bit more to give him a feel of what it was like to lift the heel and, and to not have his whole foot attached to the ground. Uh, within a week or two, the, the, uh, his knee pain went away, and he was able to take the sock off and get back to training, and then he learned during that how important it was to let the, hit, the, uh, the foot swivel on the mat on the ball of the foot. When it comes to breakfalls, some Aikido dojos do a lot of breakfalls as part of their training. A breakfall is when you land on the ground with your entire side of your body in one motion. Usually this is from a big throw where you're turned uh, feet overhead in a dramatic throw, and it's, it's going to be a pretty hard impact at the end. When you get good at breakfalls, you can take out most of the impact, but certainly not all of it. There's always going to be the full weight of your body slamming into the ground with a breakfall. Learning to do breakfalls and be able to do them well is something everybody should know how to do. Your ukemi just has to be up to speed when it comes to breakfalls. As I said before, the earth hits harder than anything else. I tend to think, though, that even at its best, with good breakfall technique, that a body only has so many breakfalls in it before the joints start suffering from chronic damage. I've heard some Aikido practitioners say that they've been doing breakfalls for years, even decades, and their body really hasn't seen any significant damage or problems that come from it. A few years ago, I met a fifth Don Judoka who'd been doing Judo for over 30 years. Great guy, wonderful to talk to, and a really great instructor. One thing I noticed when I went to shake his hand that I felt like his elbow joints, his shoulder joint, I could hear them clicking, and I could feel that they were loose. He said, yeah, don't worry about that. I've just taken a lot of falls over my time, and I can't really do much of it anymore, but I still love Judo, and I'm not ready to give it up. Now, judo's got some pretty hard throws in it, which they practice on a regular basis. And it made me think of what is potentially ahead for Aikidoka, who do a lot of breakfalls in their training. Remember, judo practitioners have ukemi at least as good as Aikido practitioners do. Everyone is free to choose how they want to train. But my conclusion is that it's best to train breakfalls enough to get really good at them to the point where you can do them well without thinking about them. But then, once you get to that point, don't do as many reps with them as you would. Try to keep your skills with breakfalls sharp, but really avoid unnecessary wear in your body by doing them too often. This leads us into the subject of koshinage or hip throws. Usually because Aikido's koshinage tends to throw uke into a pretty high throw, which results in a breakfall. So the more koshinages that you practice, the more breakfalls you're usually taking. I've also heard instructors uh, seem to be concerned with koshinage from the standpoint of nage's knees, especially with the koshinage that most Aikidoists are taught, which is a pretty big hip throw where you roll uke's body over your hip. If you do koshinage really smoothly, you'll bear very little of uke's weight as he rolls over your hip. But if you don't do it quite right, you'll get a lot of uke's weight through your legs and your knees, and this can be hard on your knees too. Personally, I find the setup for Aikido's version of Koshinage to be a little clumsy and problematic. It's easy for Uke to react or adjust and make your Koshinage not work. I have to say that I think Judo has got some much better hip throws than Aikido's Koshinage, and therefore I like to adapt a lot of those into my own Aikido. 
The reason being that the judo hip throws tend to be more subtle, more elegant, take less athleticism, and they're less fussy. They're easier to get them to work. Now I'd like to talk about a practice that many Aikido dojos do and organizations do. I'm sure you've seen videos of it, and that is Suwari Waza and Hanmi Handachi. Suwari Waza is when both Uke and Nage are on their knees and they do technique from their knees. Hanmi Handachi is when Nage is kneeling and Uke, or the attacker, is standing. There are quite a few explanations for why these practices are still in tests and in training in Aikido. But uh, to me, they don't really make a lot of sense because how many people are on their knees or kneeling and are going to get attacked or have to do technique from their knees. It really is not a terribly realistic situation. Training Suwariwaza and Hanmi Handachi can be good for mobility, for learning to use your center with your legs and hips, being mobile from your knees, but it really isn't a skill most people will ever need. I did train with one fellow student years ago, a kohai of mine, who was excellent at Suwariwaza, but he was a semi-pro baseball catcher. So his ability to be in a squatting position or on his knees and be mobile was something 99.9% of people will never have or ever need. What I have noticed about Suwariwaza, Hami Handachi, and a lot of working on the knees is that most people can only do it for about five minutes before their knees really start hurting. And that concerns me for the possible implications of long-term knee problems. I do believe that training needs to be sustainable and we need to be able to train in a way that is not bringing injury or long-term chronic problems to our joints and our bodies. I'd like to switch gears just a little bit and share something with you that I definitely warn my students about. And that is when you drop somebody, say with a hikitosh or a body drop, and you're behind them and you tip them backwards and drop them down and they have to fall backwards, if you're behind them, make sure that you get your knee out of the way so that their head doesn't hit your knee as they fall on the ground. I saw this happen years ago and it resulted in, I think, what was a mild concussion with the student that got dropped. And his head hit Nage's knee as he fell and it jarred him up pretty good. I think it's important here to talk a little bit about concussions or what happens when your head gets jarred or hit pretty well. There's a lot that science and the medical industry does not understand about the brain. It's very difficult to get firm answers from doctors and neurologists because there just isn't enough information for them to diagnose concussions. Here's what I have learned, and by the way, this is not medical advice. I want to make you aware of the subject of concussion so that you can understand how important it is and to encourage you to investigate it for yourself. It may be something you have to deal with at some point in your training. A concussion occurs when the head is jarred or shaken suddenly or suffers an impact. The brain can hit the inside of the skull, causing it to swell up. The swelling can cause a multitude of symptoms, and those include confusion, feeling like you're in a fog, dizziness, ringing in the ears, nausea, vomiting, slurred speech, long delay in answering questions, uh, headaches, appearing dazed, fatigue, and even memory problems. Sometimes a concussion can cause a short-term loss of consciousness, but it usually doesn't. Someone can have a mild concussion and not have any of these symptoms or show any of these symptoms, but the brain has still swollen slightly. If your head has suffered an impact of some kind or you feel like your bell was rung, be very careful at this point. You may not have a concussion, but it pays to be careful. And the reason that is if you did get a, even a mild concussion and your brain is slightly swollen, that further injury could be really dangerous. It's called SIS, or Second Impact Syndrome. 
And this happens when you receive a second concussion when your brain is already slightly swollen from a first impact or first concussion. If you've had a first concussion and that brain is slightly swollen and you received a second hard impact, the results can be very drastic, sometimes even fatal. So make sure that if you or a fellow student believe you might have had a concussion, be very, very careful. And I would suggest going very light. Do not risk having another impact. Also follow up in the next few days or week to see if any symptoms emerge. Most often you heal up and there are no follow-up symptoms, but it pays to be extra careful. The additional symptoms that may emerge hours or days after the injury are such things as lapses in concentration or memory issues, irritability or other personality changes, sensitivity to light and noise, sleep disturbances, psychological adjustment problems and depression, and disorders of taste and smell. Definitely seek medical attention if any of these symptoms arise. Concussions happen in many sports and martial arts is no exception. It pays to be knowledgeable about them so you can recognize the signs and act accordingly. There are two Aikido techniques that I've seen can cause pain and some injury, although it's mild injury, when they're applied with a little too much force or vigor, and that is the joint locks of Nikkyo and Sankyo. In the cases that I've seen and even the ones that I've experienced, it usually happens when you get new students who don't really understand Nikkyo or Sankyo yet, and they, they feel how powerful it is when a senior student applies it to them. And so when it comes their turn to do it, they really grab and they, they turn and crank, and they really try to get that same effect that they felt when they were uke. But what happens is they don't get the angle quite right. They don't get the geometry set up quite correct and so they try to make up for that by forcing the joint and then what happens when they start to learn is then they they use that same amount of force to make it work but then they find the right angle they find the exact right geometry and it puts a lot of juice onto that technique and it winds up hurting their uke then they learn that they need to back off of the power because they're they're getting the setup just right and the angles just right so that it, they don't need to use the strength to apply those joint locks. When you learn Nikkyo and Sankyo, it's far better to come at it from the softer side up and increase your power rather than try to be too powerful and have to back it off. If nothing else, for the sake of saving your own uke. One of the ways that you can encounter pain or injury is by trying to test Nage's technique by resisting it. It's a good exploration for Nage to test his technique, but also be careful of how much stress you want to put on your own joints and your own body in providing resistance when he has the leverage advantage. Years ago, I remember when I was an intermediate student, I was partnered with a brown belt who wanted to test his Ikkyo position. And he had my arm stretched out and, and my arm locked the way he should have. And he asked me to resist him, and I didn't know how much resistance I could put on my elbow and so I tried to stand up, and I, I did it pretty hard because he really wanted to test it. And in doing so, I hyperextended my elbow, and that took me a couple of months for that to completely heal up. I learned a great deal about my own body with how much pressure I wanted to allow on a joint and have it be safe. Some people, even advanced martial artists, may not really understand that if they've not dealt with joint locks and joint controls. An example of this is one of my students who just tested for his showdown last fall. And in preparation, we were getting him used to groundwork and working from having somebody tackling him or, or being on the ground and needing to get back up. 
So he was wound up training with some jujitsu people and some wrestlers. And uh, as they were grappling around, one of them grabbed him over his shoulder. So he took a hold of the forearm and started turning it into a good sakyo. Well, the guy he was wrestling with never experienced a sakyo before. And as my student tightened it up and tightened it up, he felt like he could break his arm. But his opponent just kept going. He didn't realize what danger he was in. And so my student told him, I said, if I go any farther, I'm going to break your arm and I don't want to do that. So he backed off. And fortunately, it was a friendly exchange, but, but he realized that his opponent didn't understand what was about to happen to his body, and he chose to protect his opponent. The thing about joint locks is very similar to most other martial training, and that is you always want to go slow and smooth to start out with, not try to go fast and have your technique be sloppy. When you're locking and controlling joints, you very much need smooth control. So go slow, be smooth, and work on that control. Once you have that, the speed will come naturally as you get more and more comfortable with it. In talking about how to build up speed, that'll be the subject for the next podcast, so stay tuned for that one. What are other topics you're interested in hearing about covered in this podcast? Please share your ideas in the comments if you're watching this on YouTube. You can also go to the Facebook group Aikido the Marshall Side and post a comment there. Your input and engagement helps podcasts like this stay around. Please support it by liking, subscribing, and sharing. Enjoy your training.